Nothing stays the same forever. In the face of our planet's increasingly imperiled state and the rippling effects of climate change, it's a fact that's becoming hard to ignore. Animals become endangered and disappear, certain ecosystems stop existing, and the world as we know it changes. Stopping our planet from changing so quickly is just about all we can do these days, and it takes every tool in our belt to fight the negative effects of climate change. Fire is an integral piece of ecological restoration work, and nobody knows its connection to climate change better than adaptation specialist Chris Hoving. Chris works at the Michigan Department of Natural Resources and has a pretty firm grasp on the difficulties facing our planet and how fire might be able to help. Here's my interview with Chris. Welcome to Learn Baby Burn, the Michigan Prescribed Fire Council's very own podcast. Uh, today we're doing an interview with the DNR's Chris Hoving. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. So yeah, how did you uh, make your way to the DNR? What sort of the ladder that was climbed? Um, it wasn't It wasn't straight. You know, I, I talked to a lot of people about their career paths and they're rarely straight. They're always weird twists and turns. So I grew up... Uh, in the city, unlike a lot of people in the wildlife division who have more of a, a rural background, interested in, in hunting, mm -hmm. um, more and more younger people have a similar background to what I do. I grew up in the city, and I, I felt the lack of wildlife, the lack of nature around me, and wanted to get into that. Wildlife ecology does uh, just involves so many different systems. It involves such a deep understanding of nature. So a big part of what you do, I'm guessing at least, is fire-related, or at least uh, it's something, it's a process that you lean on a decent amount in your work. Yes, yes. I, I got interested in fire when I was at Michigan State University, and it's been a, an interest that has sort of followed me as I've moved from step to step in my career. Um, was your first interaction with fire in writing or in practice? It was in practice. Um, so when I was a, an undergraduate, and this is, this is how leadership things often often happen. There's a fisheries and wildlife club at Michigan State University and it had a subcommittee, a committee of folks who worked on a piece of property right behind the, the building where fisheries and wildlife was housed. And it was just basically this, this old field, shrubby area where uh, students, undergraduates could practice wildlife management. But this committee managed that area and one of the things they had done several years prior to that was plant a prairie. And it was, I don't know, not much bigger than this room, a quarter acre, not even that. It was a small prairie planting, but we knew that it probably needed to be burned. And so we got a burn permit, worked with the local fire department. They came out and said, we'll do this as a, a training for our staff. They handed me the drip torch and said, would you like to light this? I lit it and it blew up. I mean, it was huge flames, not for very long, but it was big flames and it just roared across the, the field. Yeah, the, the fire department guy was, you know, in his full gear, you know, in the flames trying to put it out. And afterwards he said, we want to come back next year. <laughs> that was awesome. Because I was like, oh my gosh, we burned our fence. It got out of control. It went a little bit beyond. And they were like, no, that was awesome. We want, we, that was good training. We want to do that again next year. Caught like, the awesome. bug. Yeah, so. And it sounds like you caught the bug from that experience yeah, as well. Yeah, I caught the bug from that experience. And then from there I went, I did my master's work on Canada lynx. And Canada lynx habitat is young trees that are created um, after large wildfires in the boreal system. Interesting. And so that, that got me really interested in this whole idea of shifting mosaics and fire as a natural process in ecosystems, yeah. the importance of early successional habitats. And then from there I came to the Michigan DNR working on private lands um, and endangered species. And so much 
In Southwest Michigan, so much of that is prairies, it's grassland birds, and endangered butterflies and savannas. And mm -hmm. both of those systems require fire. And so I, I learned, one, how to contract out fire safely and also how to do burns on public lands so that I would know what I was talking about with fire professionals. And right. Yeah, so then I got very involved in fire. Is there a good burn infrastructure at the DNR or did you sort of have to set some things in place that hadn't been there? Um, I would say that um, there was a, a generation of folks ahead of me who were setting that up. So I, I benefited from the, the leadership that other people were taking within the agency to create burn teams and a burn program. I would say we have the tools to do it safely now, which is important. Um, we just don't have the capacity to do it as much as um, I would like to see my vision. Sure. So with your work with the Carner Blue, it sounds like fire is a pretty integral part of the restoration work that you're doing for them. Yes. I wonder how this translates to other endangered species as well. Is this sort of a theme in Michigan, or is it sort of niche for a species to be this dependent on fire? It is definitely a theme in Michigan. Um, often people will think of uh, endangered species as something like wolves, where they need to be in an area where there's pristine wilderness somewhere. And if we just protect the pristine wilderness, we'll be able to keep the endangered species. But there, you know, there are some like species of snails and things like that that are very fire sensitive, but that's not most of the species. Most of the species that we have, the rare species that we have, especially in the southern part of the state, but even in the northern parts of the state as well, are associated with prairies, savannas, and um, fire-driven forests. Um, and all of those species require, to some degree, habitats that are maintained by fire. Some of our most biodiverse systems in Michigan are, some, are, are prairie fens, which require clean water and fire. Um, our oak savannas, which really require fire. Um, so fire is really critical to a lot of those species. The trick to it though, fire also kills individuals of those species when it goes through. Um, a turtle, for example. Turtles are really good at avoiding fire if you use fire at the right time of year. Um, if you use it you know, later in the summer when you know, they're all limbered up and warmed up. But if they've just gotten out of hibernation, it's sort of like you know, having a fire when you haven't had your coffee yet. You're just not gonna be able to outrun it as fast as if you know, late in the day and you've had a couple cups, you can really you know, respond to things quickly. Mm -hmm. Same thing with, with critters. So you can end up doing damage if you do burns at the wrong time, the wrong intensity, Sometimes for certain species, if you do a ring burn, that can trap species in the middle. There isn't a, a good rule of thumb to say, oh, we always need to burn in this season or in this way. You have to burn in a lot of different ways and you have to tailor it to the rare species that might be in that area so that you can benefit them without harming them. Sure. So it's, it's, it's really, sometimes people wonder, what, what is it that you know, wildlife ecologists do you know, it's not like you're a forester and you're just out cutting trees and you can see, you know, the wood, the pile of wood at the end of it. Um, it. A lot of it is that trying to figure out, okay, when, when we do a prescribed fire, how do we set this up to benefit the particular species that are in this area? And that's, that's a real challenge. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of difficulty between trying to protect endangered species while also trying to protect species that everyone knows and loves. It, it, it is a difficult juggling act because most people are attached to have a visceral attachment to individual animals. And so 
you know, we can do a, a prescribed burn that creates habitat for, you know, 100 turtles in an area, but may kill a turtle. And um, that, that is tough. None of us like to, like to see that. It makes sense to me that there's a link between fire suppression and the fact that all these endangered species rely on uh, fire-dependent ecosystems. Yes. Or are fire-dependent themselves. Yeah. There's a paper looking at the most endangered biomes on the planet. So a biome is sort of the next level up from ecosystems. A biome is like boreal forest is a biome, temperate forest is a biome, so really big chunks. And looked at how much had been converted and how much was currently under conservation protection. So using those two metrics and said, well, which, which ones are the most converted and the least protected? Temperate savannas and grasslands were the most converted and least protected of all ecosystems on the planet. So it's not your Arctic tundra, it's not your polar bears, it's not your wetlands, it's not your rainforests, it's Michigan's oak savannas. We've lost 99.98% of our oak savannas. They were 8% of, if you think of all the whole state of Michigan, 8% of the, the state of Michigan was oak savannas at one time. We're probably at thousands of acres now, but when you think of thousands of acres, you're, you're saying, you know, it's like 10, 20 football fields worth compared to 8% of the state. Yeah. We've lost almost all of our oak savannas. So they're our most imperiled biome. Mm -hmm. What goes along with that is that all the species that are adapted to that biome have been shrunk down into these tiny little islands. Mm -hmm. um, some types of savanna have gone completely extinct. Wow. Yeah. It's very disappointing. Yeah, I imagine that comes predominantly from fire suppression. It comes from fire suppression and a land use change. The reason we had 8% of the state was in these savannah ecosystems was because we had people on the landscape who were burning. I'm sure they were burning accidentally. A lot of it was probably wildfire, but they were probably also burning intentionally. And these were our indigenous people who lived here for you know 10,000 years before we created this society on top of it. And they did a lot of burning. When you reverse engineer and say, okay, 8% of the landscape, that means that 8% of the landscape was burning probably on a annual to five-year cycle. Wow. You know, that's, that's probably pushing a million acres. A lot of what early European settlers discovered, quote-unquote, in this landscape was actually a human society that was maybe a tenth or less of what it had been. So there used to be a lot of villages, a lot of almost cities in southern Michigan, and one of the main food sources that they had was acorns. And so they were burning regularly to sort of support this, this acorn crop, and also in doing that they were supporting the carnivore butterflies and this whole ecosystem. European settlers still used a lot of fire, and so there was still a lot of fire going on, really up until about World War II. It was amazingly recent that we really sort of put in policies and said um, by 10 o'clock the next morning every fire has to be out and that was the policy and then we built this fire suppression infrastructure that would accomplish that and at the same time people moved more towards fossil fuel and tractors to keep lands open rather than using fire to keep lands open and so between those two things we just ended up with very few of these ecosystems making it through that pulse, all the grasslands grew up to, to forest. The other part of it was that if you look at a map, a pre-settlement map mm -hmm. of where all the grass, the big prairies were, there's too much rain in Michigan to maintain that without fire. And you look at those spots and they're, you know, where Grand Rapids is now, 
where Battle Creek is now, wow. where Kalamazoo is now. And so when settlers came in, they found these spots that already were open. And so they settled those spots. Little did they know, because fires had been going through those spots for so long and so intensely, they were very lush, but had very little nutrients in the soil. There were, there were sandy, nutrient-poor spots. Interesting. Um, and so they weren't that good for farming. And a lot of those areas were actually abandoned later for farming and either turned to urban, like the cities that I mentioned, mm -hmm. or were turned into state game areas. So it sounds like prairies became parking lots, agricultural land, and forest. Yes, yes. And it's also part of the reason that so much of the prairies and savannas are now located. They're either located where cities are or they're located where state game areas are. Our state game areas have really high concentrations of endangered species on them, more than would have happened accidentally. And it's because of that history, that fire history in those areas. Wow. So is it simple to restore a prairie? Is it as simple as burning? Yes and no. It really depends on, on the spot. There were some prairie remnants that I worked with the Nature Conservancy and Land Conservancy of West Michigan on up in Nuevo County. Really all they needed was fire and repeated fire. And after the third or fourth burn, you started getting these endangered plants that definitely weren't there you know, wow. the last three or four times I walked through the area and suddenly there's this, you know, false bone set. You know, so where did that come from? That's a, that's a perennial and it's a fully grown plant this year. And it wasn't here before. And really what, what I learned was that a lot of these uh, perennial plants can live in a dormant state in the soil. Not as seeds, but as a, as a dormant root system for decades. And they just wait until they get that cue with, okay, I'm getting enough sun now and there's been a couple fires through here. This is beginning to feel like a prairie, and they, they pop up. Um, and there were other spots where we, we would run fires through, and it would kill off enough of the trees that all these savanna plants would come up from the understory. And I thought it was a forest, and no, it was just a really suppressed savanna. Wow. Other times, you know, if it's, a, if it's your backyard or someplace that's been plowed for a long time, it's a it's a real slog to get that back to being a, a diverse forest. Usually what happens is whatever plant is best adapted to that homogenous field just eventually after a couple of years takes over. It can be a lot of work to start introducing homogeneity into a field like that, burning different parts of the field at different times, interspersing some mowing, different seeds in different areas. It becomes really complex. And then if you have an endangered species, we talked about that earlier, that really adds complexity to it. So if there's a carnivore blue site that we want to burn. We don't burn, we try to find out where the butterflies lay their eggs most years, so we'll like watch and keep those spots outside of the burn. We just don't burn those spots. Those become like micro refuges for butterflies. Wow. And then even then, we only burn a third of the area that's occupied by the butterflies, the, the patch. Mm -hmm. We burn no more than a third. But for a savannah, you can't burn it less than every five years. And so you can right. see you're really in this like really tight, we gotta burn a third this year, next year, and the year after. And if there's a wet year or a low budget year or you know, winds just aren't right that year, you end up missing things. So we're really sort of up against it when we're, we're trying to get these burns for endangered species done without endangering the species because they're now concentrated on these small areas but still getting the fire effects that we need from fairly frequent burning. It's a, it's a real challenge. Yeah, wow. Keeps us employed. <laughs>
AI is not going to figure that one out. You've got <laughs> to actually walk through the woods. Yeah, solve this one, Watson. Yeah. Oh, this is sort of doubling back, but you asked me to ask you this, so I'm going to ask it. <laughs> How much prescribed fire is enough? Ah, okay. Yeah, that's, that was one of the, the, the questions that I fed you. See how spontaneous we're being in our, our discussion here? This is, this is great. How much fire is enough fire? So that's a, a good question. It has two answers to it. There's Thank a, you. It's a great question. <laughs> yes. I'm glad you asked that. It has two answers to it. There's a, there's a social aspect to it, um, and human values aspect, and there's an ecological um, aspect. And so humans have to decide what they want the landscape to look like, how complex they want it, how much habitat do they want for endangered species? How many endangered species do they want to save and bring through to the, the next generation? So there's a, a question, a social question of how much resources are we willing to put towards it as a society and what sort of, what's our vision of success at the end of this? Do we want to restore half of the overgrown savannas that we have right now into savanna or are some of those areas actually providing other ecosystem services as forests, and we want to keep some of them as forests. So there's a, a social question um, there. Just about all of our prairies, all of our savannas, they wouldn't be here if there wasn't humans doing some sort of land management. It would just all turn to forest um, because we don't get dry lightning strikes like they get out west. So we, we have to figure out for the systems that we have, how much fire do those systems need, and socially, how much do those need. And we've recently done a analysis with the Michigan Natural Features Inventory, a fire needs analysis, asking that ecological question. Okay, we have these areas. If we just kept them, wanted to keep them all the same way, wanted to keep all the oak forest forest, all the savanna savanna, all the prairies prairie, how often would we have to burn each of those areas and how often would we have to return? And then you can sort of add that up. We're probably burning 10 to 20 percent of what we need to burn just to keep what we have. I don't think we've had a grasp until recently just how much need there was ecologically on the landscape just to stay where we are. Mm. We're really living off of the results of burning pre-World War II. Mm. Is the need for burning going to increase with climate change or decrease or somehow shift in an unpredictable way? That is, that really sums up the question of um, the dissertation work that I'm doing with Michigan State University, I don't have the answer yet. Um, so you know, stay tuned. Ask me again in two years or one year. Um, but yes, so the, the reason we're asking that question is that we have all of these oak forests. They're a, a, a type of, they're called xeric forests. Xeric is a fancy word for dry. So they're, they're relatively dry because fires go through at a fairly regular interval, you know, talking pre-World War II, so long, long past. Um, it allowed all of these oak trees to grow up in a quote-unquote dry system. Now that they've been oak forest for many decades, closed canopy, shading the ground, it's allowed trees that, that are more mesic, that like it less dry to start growing up in the understory. Shade-tolerant trees, mostly red maple, um, but also you know, black cherry, beech, other maples. They're growing up in the understory now. And if there's a wind event or timber harvest or something other than fire that kills off those, those oak trees, what we get 
replacing them is not oak trees. We get maple trees. And so we have this mapleization currently ongoing of, of the system, which is fine. Um, it's not fine. I, I would much rather have the oak system. Um, but it's happening, and the easiest thing to do, it would take a lot of resources, a lot of changes to address that over such a large landscape. You'd have to do a lot of restoration type burns just to get back to those systems, back to having oak understory rather than maple understory. We could invest in that, but it depends a bit on climate change. So if climate change in the future is gonna be favoring red maple and not oak, then we probably wanna let a lot of these maple forests grow up um, because that's what's gonna be adapted to the future climate. If, and this is what I think is probably more likely, the climate is going to favor oak over red maple, then we've got a window of opportunity here where we need to get these oak trees through to that next climate where we won't have mesification going on. It'll be a little drier, a little warmer, and it'll be easier to maintain these oak forests. If we get to that future climate that's bad for red maples and all we've got is red maples, mm -hmm. then we're kind of not in a good spot as far as the health of the land goes. Yeah. Um, especially with all these endangered species that require those savannas. Um, so we probably need to invest in more fire because of climate change. But we need to, if we're going to make that decision, we need to make that based on data and not on sort of my gut feeling looking at the climate models. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's what we're doing right now. We're running simulations in the computer of how red maple grow and how oaks grow under different climate scenarios to see, you know, what does the future look like if we do a lot of restoration now, if we don't do a lot of restoration now, how much of an impact does that have for, on the future? The amount of legwork that it sounds like we have to do as humans uh, sounds immense. Mother Nature will do its thing, but it might not be the best thing for us and for the environments that we're trying to keep. Right. It's daunting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mother Nature will, will find a balance, but that balance may be out of balance with what the system was for the last 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. And part of it is also that people don't realize that fire suppression is a choice, is something that we're doing. And we're actually, we, there are a lot of people right now devoted to fire suppression. And I can't say that's a bad thing. You know, I'm, I'm a homeowner. I don't want fires, you know, randomly coming through my neighborhood. Um, and I don't want that for anyone else. So we have to keep doing the fire suppression. We have to keep doing that because of the society that we've we've built. Um, it's not like that previous society. But if we want to keep all those ecosystem services that we've been sort of getting for free from those fires pre-World War II, we need to step up our game on prescribed fire as well. Is a part of the prescribed fire work that the DNR does allowing wildfires to burn and trying to control the burn, or is that almost non-existent? That is currently non-existent, and as I understand it, it's either by policy or by law. Policy can change, but it would have to be changed before the DNR could start implementing it. Um, most cases, you wouldn't use that tool, but there are enough cases now and then where you would say, okay, you would take, it would be safer, it would be less resources, there'd be ecological benefits, just to let this fire burn out to the road. Um, rather than creating a burn line or plow line through the woods to stop it halfway through the woods. Um, so it's, it, it's something we could look at, at changing it, but there's a, there's a 
just like everything else with natural resources, there's a whole set of values on one side and a whole set of values on the other side, and that has to be worked out through the, the political system. You just talked about being a landowner. I did just talk about being a landowner. Um, so I've, I've been, I now have a, a, a house in a neighborhood in town, but um, that was a move like last year. Before that, I had a, a house out in the country. I had eight acres, old field, and did do some prescribed burning. Yeah, I don't think that the fire council or the DNR is supposed to expressly encourage people to burn on their own land. But as someone who has done that, what's the process like? How did you do it to remain safe? How did you do it to be effective? Yeah, so I, I definitely wouldn't recommend that people do it on their own property without sort of the level of training that I've had. So I've been through, there's national standards for people to work with fire, either prescribed fire or fire suppression in the wildland context. Um, so I've been through S-130, S-190, 290, I have task books that are partially filled out. And these are um, courses with the National Wildfire Coordinating Group? That's the group, yes. Um, so having gone through many, many hours of, of training, um, I felt that if I brought a bunch of other DNR friends and also some family together to do the burn, that I could do it, I could do it safely. And so we had uh, safety equipment, which is not cheap, um, you know, clothes that don't don't burn, Nomex clothes, um, helmets, water at different points. Actually, we had we actually had I bought a whole bunch of hoses. We had a hose lay all the way around the burn. So there was wow. there was wa lots of water. Um, but even so, when I put up the smoke column, and I had called, got a permit from my local folks, and then I called dispatch to let them know as well. Because sometimes the folks you get the permit from don't tell dispatch, and dispatch gets the calls for the smoke. So I called dispatch and told them, you might get calls, um, if you get calls, you know, in my geography, it's a prescribed burn, it's okay, reassure folks. What I had neglected to do was to tell dispatch in the neighboring county. And when you use a cell phone to call in a burn, it goes to the nearest tower, not necessarily the county that you're in. And so it went to the other county, they called their fire department, so I, get, I ended up with fire trucks screaming up my driveway, you know, my burn, I'm like, whoa, here we go. <laughs> but, you know, when you come out dressed in Nomex and have a hard hat on, and, you know, they see that you've got three or four people with, with hoses spraying things, they're like, okay, you've got this. I'm sure your kids were inspired, though. They were inspired. And as they grew older, um, this was quite a while ago, as the, when they were teenagers, we would do um, smaller scale prescribed, not even really a prescribed burn, burning the garden. I think it's it's important to pass on that that cultural knowledge. Um, obviously, it's not something that most of your listeners are going to be able to do because they're not going to have the access. But if they are interested, many land conservancies will have programs that will get you tied into something like the Michigan Prescribed Fire Council that does these trainings and can get you trained up to at least participate on the fire line as a as a volunteer. So it's and we're also working with folks at Michigan State University is now offering a, a, a class on prescribed fire and trying to get people trained up to the minimum level to be a volunteer on a, a fire line. So there's, there are opportunities out there to, to do this safely and do it in a, a structured environment. There's a lot of ways for people to get involved, it sounds like. If, if someone really wants to do fire in a safe way, I'm not talking to the, the pyromaniacs out there who, you know, 
are, are, would do this illegally. But if you want to do it in a, in a safe way that would actually benefit um, rare species and benefit nature, yeah, there's several different avenues that you could you could pursue. It's lit. It's, it's lit. It's actually fired. lit. Yeah. Um, great. You mentioned that the DNR doesn't necessarily burn everything that could be burned year by right. year. There's a lot of land that goes unburned. Yep. How was the decision made to burn certain plots versus other plots? Okay, so the, the decision that we go through, it's a um, very involved uh, process, um, which starts with, at this point, starts with the local land manager. And I, I guess within the DNR, I've been speaking mostly about our wildlife lands and state game areas because that's what I'm most familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, but a similar process occurs on parks, lands, and state forests as well. And uh, the, the manager who manages that local area, so say the biologist at the Allegan State Game Area, um, would say, okay, based on my knowledge of this area and the wildlife and our long-term vision for uh, the, the health of this area, I think we need to burn in these five places. And I know we can burn those spots safely. And so they'll propose a burn, and it's a several-page form on where it is, the conditions, all those sorts of things. Um, and that burn will then make it onto a list. And the list is then scored, um, each burn on the list, and we'll get hundreds of, of burns um, from across the, the state on this list. They're then scored by um, how many different uh, benefits accrue. So you might get extra points for having an endangered species. You might get extra points for restoring a rare ecosystem. You might get extra points for controlling invasive species. Um, all of these will give you more points and then they're all ranked based on how many points they have. And then they'll, we'll look at our, basically look at our budget and say, okay, we've got enough money to burn, we think the top 80. And so those are then sent to the fire manager for the area who's sort of the the professional who does fire, and he gets all of those things, and he creates a detailed burn plan for each of those spots. That includes, you know, contingency plans if something were to go wrong, smoke management. You know, when can you burn under what conditions? What, what's safe? What's not safe? So they do all of the the professional things to make sure that it's going to be a safe burn and meet the objectives. Once the season rolls around. They don't just go down the list. They'll say, okay, we've got the conditions are right to do a burn where we have winds from the northwest, because we've got winds from the northwest today. And so they'll go through the list and find the, the highest priority burn that has winds from the northwest and say, all right, we're going to go and do that burn uh, today. So it's all, there's a lot of different layers where people have to have input. There has to be sort of the ecological knowledge local knowledge, and then it has to be interfaced with the, the fire professionals who can do it in a safe way and also get the effects that the local land manager wants. A lot of planning and a lot of improvisation as well, it sounds like. There's a lot of planning and then there's, yeah, there's a lot of improvisation as you're, as you're out there. As far as, not so much improvisation as departing from a plan, but mm -hmm. picking which plans on the list you go to. It always starts with the high priority one, but then to the nearby ones. Gotcha. Wow. Sounds rigorous. The point system, the scoring, the record keeping, the planning. Yes, it, it is rigorous. What I'm finding from my, my research is that it also tends to concentrate the, the, the burning in, a certain, um, in certain geographies. So there's certain state parks that might do burns that 
do restoration for endangered species, and they have invasive species issues, and they have this you know special game species designation. Mm. And every year, most of their burns are going to hit all four of those, so they're always going to be ranked up at the top. And so, you, what started as a system to try to make it fair and divvy out the money more or less evenly um, actually turns into a process for meeting most of the uh, fire need goals on a certain, a couple certain spots, but then not meeting goals in, in other areas. So that's something we need to reevaluate, you know, as, a, as an agency and say, okay, let's, let's look at our, our scoring system here. Maybe we need to tweak it to meet some of these other, other goals that we have as an agency of not just concentrating the fire. Or maybe we do, we just want to say, we want to concentrate the fire in these spots where it's meeting all these goals, and we just don't do as much fire outside those areas. Right. So that's a, that's a conversation we still have to have. Sure. Interesting. What I like about fire is that it's fun, and it makes a big difference in the world, especially in, in Michigan where we've got these you know, globally most endangered biomes that we're, we're restoring for all of these endangered species. It's, it's just, there are a few things that you can do that are as exciting and as meaningful. And as you were saying earlier, it seems to be a big coalescence of social and political and uh, ecological phenomena, I guess. Yes. Yeah, it's all enmeshed in a, a much larger complex system that results in the patterns of land use that we've had on the, on the landscape. Can you ever see yourself not working in fire in the future? No, I think if I stopped working on it, because right now I'm working entirely at the policy level. I don't actually carry a drip torch anymore. Um, so I, I concentrate on the, the policy side, the planning side right now. But I think if I ever, if I took a job or my job duties shifted to where I wasn't working on some aspect of, of fire ecology, I would probably go the route of calling up my local land conservancy and saying, hey, I've got S-130, 190, 290, you know, I've got these designations. I'd like to help you with some prescribed burns the next time you're you're doing them, mm -hmm. so that I could just stay involved at that at that level. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's necessary. Yep, it feels like it's uh, getting more traction. Feels that way that people are getting more involved, people are more curious than they have been. I wonder if you feel that at the policy level. I definitely feel it at the at the policy level. There's a lot more interest in in prescribed fire um, because people are realizing that it meets all of these all of these goals that we have as an agency mm -hmm. you know so a lot of people are realizing that we have all of these values that are met with prescribed fire and are met pretty efficiently with prescribed fire I mean if you want to if you want to go through and mow a quarter acre or burn a quarter acre it's going to be cheaper to mow a quarter acre um, or do a forest harvest or something. But as soon as you start getting to those large landscapes where you say, all right, I want to treat 600 acres, a square mile. I want to treat a square mile, and I want to treat the whole thing. Mowing, herbicide, forest harvest, all of these things start becoming really expensive um, if you want to do forest harvest as a restoration technique. Um, and fire becomes much, much cheaper. So there's. There's this economy of scale with fire that people are also realizing, you know what, we probably can't afford to intensively manage the whole state game area system or the whole state park system. Um, 
but we could manage a larger portion than we do with fire. If we had, we'd have to buy more trucks, we'd have to hire more people, There's, we'd have to find out the budget to do it, frankly. Um, but if we could get to that point, um, we, we could do a lot of good. Sort of a final question. Okay. Uh, yeah, good luck with getting me to stop talking about fire. But <laughs> no, yeah, I, I if you think it's the final question, listen all day. <laughs> do you think that climate change is going to make prescribed fire more or less prevalent? And it's obviously going to make wildfire much more prevalent, but do you think it's going to cause people to want to burn less because of the increased danger, or is it going to make it more possible in areas that it might not have been in the past? That's a good question. I think that that is an open answer. Um, on the one hand, um, when you do a prescribed fire um, through a, a forested ecosystem, it's going to kill a lot of the shrubs, the young trees, um, depending on the fire, maybe even some medium-sized trees. And those trees will fall, they will rot, they'll release carbon dioxide, or they'll burn and release carbon dioxide. And so if you're trying to grow a forest to sequester carbon and slow down climate change. Um, burning is going to be a moving counter to that goal. Um, you're actually going to be putting, burning or not burning, you're going to be putting more carbon dioxide into the air with, with burning. However, if you want to fix a lot of the carbon or some of the carbon into the soil, then doing prescribed burns is going to pull more carbon into the roots. It's also going to fix carbon as charcoal, which is going to keep carbon uh, sort of in the ground. And so I think that prescribed fire does have a role, especially if you're looking at long-term accounting for carbon. Um, if you're looking at just over the next year, you probably don't want to burn that. If you're looking for 10, 15, 100 years, uh, burning is a very efficient way to get carbon into the soil and fixed for a long period of time. So the scale again. So it's a it's a it's a scale issue. The other question I asked a couple of years ago at the burning issues symposium, because I was really curious about it, was you have all of this smoke going up into the atmosphere. Um, is that putting um, soot onto glaciers in Greenland or the North Pole or whatever? Because a lot of this material gets up into the upper atmosphere and then falls out. And they said, here in the mid-latitudes, it's, it's going to go out over the ocean, and it's not going to have that, that net effect. They said, if you're in the boreal system, if you're, you know, these wildfires in Canada or in Alaska, those are worrisome, because that puts soot into an area where it is going to fall on glaciers and accelerate the melting of those glaciers. Wow. So that's, so I think we're going to, we're going to need to up the suppression but I think what comes along with that, if we still want to have all of these fire-associated species on the landscape, we're going to have to up the prescribed fire at the same time. It's an interesting combination. Yeah. Stop it, but put it down on our terms. Right. Put it down in the geographies we want it, during the seasons that we want it. Because apparently the we could do prescribed burns even at high latitudes. If we did them at the right season, the smoke wouldn't go onto glaciers. It would go elsewhere. So it's, it's just that... When it happens, middle of the summer, like it's been happening, that's that's not good. Right. I didn't realize a lot of what you did is policy work, is crafting. Yeah, it's 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 policy, it's policy and planning. Wow. So you work with the bigwigs. Are they open 
to hearing about climate change and prescribed fire? Um, Separate it, questions, I suppose. Yeah, it, it varies over time for both of those. I would say that the prescribed fire does not have the, uh, the political polarization that climate change does. Interesting. Um, so just mentioning climate change will often put people, trigger people into thinking as a partisan. So mm-hmm. they'll, they'll start associating. If you ask people about the sort of policies non-climate change related that they support, um, they might rank you know, a 70 out of 100 on their partisanship. If you mention climate change before you ask them those questions, it bumps up 75, 80. So people put on their political brain when they hear the word climate change that depending on who's in charge in any given time, that can be a great benefit or it can be a great hindrance. Not so much with prescribed fire. Prescribed fire, you're, neither side is being triggered into, into partisan thinking by prescribed fire. So it's very much, you know, what is the science? What is the need? What are the other values that we're, we're balancing here as far as you know, public safety, budget, those sorts of things? Mm-hmm. There's not as much interest on the policy level with fire. I think there's a sense that we are doing as much as, with prescribed fire, we're doing as much as we can or as much as we need. Mm-hmm. The, the status quo is, we've come a long way, we're doing pretty good. Right. Um, I, I would disagree with that and sort of push a little bit to say, no, there's, there's a lot more that we could do. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, a lot of times people are looking at, I've got this budget, how do I divvy this up rather than, sure. okay, if a larger budget came, then how would these things shift? Right, I'm sure it's not a priority for many people on the, policy level because they don't want to be the person who encouraged more fire. It's not a great thing to be associated with, I'm guessing, just as far as public as general public perception goes. Right. Right. You have to you have to craft the message of why you're you're doing fire and what are those values that you're that you're hitting. Right. But we're doing we're doing better with that. I mean, um, we've got podcasts like this, we've done some some outreach specifically on fire. There's a really nice storyboard on the DNR website. I don't know if you've seen that one. It sort of walks you through prescribed fire, what we do before, during, and after. So we're we're getting there. It's getting better. It is definitely getting better. Well, Chris, uh, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks. All right, thank you. Learn Baby Burn is edited and produced by me, Paul Mayer. All music is composed and performed by me, Paul Mayer. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get notified of future episodes and check us out online at firecouncil.org as well as on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Big thanks to the Michigan Department of Natural Resources for letting us record this episode in their offices. Thanks for burning some time with us. We'll see you next time.